you have a Bible, we continue in John's Gospel, chapter 6. There are printed messages at both exits. You can uh, grab those if you'd like and uh, follow along. Those are also online, and the audio messages are on the church website as well, and you can listen to them there. There should be an outline in your bulletin you can follow. We come to John 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. I'll only comment briefly on verses 14 and 15. And then uh, next week I'm going to comment more on those verses. But uh, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, as it is uh, often called. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men, and the Greek word there is the males, as opposed to, uh, it's not men generically. The men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus Perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Uh, over 36 years ago, I uh, began as a pastor at age 30. I can't imagine what possessed that church to hire a 30-year-old as their pastor, but that's when I began. And uh, I was extremely unsure about whether or not I could fulfill the demands of the job. I had never preached consecutively week to week, and I thought, maybe I'm going to run out of gas in about, you know, a month or two, and I don't know what I'm going to do after that. So I wasn't sure that I would be able to get up week to week and teach the Word, I wasn't sure about whether I could adequately shepherd God's flock, you know, when people come with all sorts of needs and that kind of thing. 
there are many other demands in the job that just made me very, very uncertain about what am I doing here and why am I doing this. And so I told the Lord, I'll try it for three years and we'll see where we're at. And uh, by His grace, here I am. But I still, many, many weeks even now, feel so overwhelmed with inadequacy of what I'm doing that I, I think about quitting, to be honest. And uh, I, I hit a wall often where I sit and I stare at the text I'm going to preach on. And I stare at it and I stare at it. And as you know, the clock is ticking. Sunday comes around pretty faithfully every seven days. And... Uh, I begin to get panicked and I think, what am I going to say here? I don't understand this passage and I don't know what I'm going to say. And God has always been faithful to come through. And so uh, here I am. But the reason I share all of that with you is this. There is no text in the New Testament that has helped me more in these years as I seek feeling my inadequacy to come and deliver a message each week than this story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's probably better called the feeding of the 20,000 because as I mentioned when I read the text, there were 5,000 males and there were women and children. And so if, you know, it was a husband, wife, and two kids, you got 20,000 mouths to feed that were sitting there. And it's a literal miracle, of course. Christ did this. There were thousands of witnesses who saw it. But it's also, in a sense, a parable in that there are many spiritual lessons that are beneath the surface of the message. And I believe one of the main lessons is the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ to meet the needs of hungry people uh, through his inadequate servants, his disciples who don't really have enough to meet the need. And uh, what happened, as you know, the disciples gave the little bit they had to the Lord, and that was enough. The Lord took it, the Lord blessed it, and the disciples distributed it to the multitude, and they were satisfied, they were fed, and... Uh, for 36 years now, I come to the Lord with a little, it's not much, and ask Him to use it and multiply it, and He seems to be able to do that in spite of my inadequacy. It's the only miracle that you have in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, except for the resurrection of Jesus, of course. Um, <clears throat> the one we'll look at next week, walking on the water, is in Matthew, Mark, and John, but Luke leaves it out. So there must be something significant about this miracle, and uh, Charles Spurgeon said that it's in all four Gospels, so we won't forget how much the Lord can do with just a little, and uh, when we yield that little to Him. Uh, Jesus follows this, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, with a long discourse that begins in verse uh, 32 and goes all the way down to verse 58 a discourse on how he is the bread of life. And um, so it is a miracle that is really about more than bread. It's a miracle It's about the bread of eternal life. It's a miracle that John included as he writes in chapter 20, verse 31, so that you, personalize that, every one of you, 
may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's why John wrote this. Um, John begins in verse 1. He says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias as it later was known. Now the last time note John gave us was back in chapter 5 and verse 1 where he mentioned an unnamed feast of the Jews. Probably that feast was the Feast of Tabernacles which occurred in the fall. And now we are in the spring with the Feast of the Passover as he's going to mention in verse 4. And uh, so five or six months have passed. The other Gospels fill in the blanks and tell us that during that time, Jesus sent out the twelve on a ministry trip, on a mission. They come back, they report to Jesus all that they had experienced, and meanwhile they get word that Herod has decapitated John the Baptist. He has executed him in prison, as you know the story. And that weighed heavily on Jesus and on the disciples. One of the other Gospels also says that these men were so busy that they didn't even have time to eat with all of the people coming to them. And so Jesus invited the twelve and said, let's get away to a quiet place where we can get some rest. And that was much needed. Uh, So they took a boat across just the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, not a great distance, and uh, went to a spot in the country that was north and east of Bethsaida, the village of uh, Philip and Andrew and Peter. But the problem was the crowds saw them go on the boat, and they made the short trip around the lake. And guess what? When they disembarked from the boat, there's the crowd, same crowd that they had left behind. Picture yourself on your honeymoon saying goodbye to all your wedding guests, You get to the hotel, and there they are! Surprise! You know, Uh, not what you want to experience. You want a little downtime, quiet time by yourselves. And so that's what's going on here. I'm sure that the disciples' eyes got big and they thought, oh no, we can't get away from these people. And yet, in typical fashion, the other Gospels report that Jesus saw the multitude and he felt compassion on them, and he taught them from the Word, and he healed their sick. Now, John mentions here in verse 2, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So these people weren't following Jesus because they said, you know, I am spiritually hungry, I am needy, and I need Jesus to forgive my sins. That wasn't why they were following him. Some of them were miracle seekers, you know? I mean, if somebody's doing miracles, it's pretty amazing. And there weren't movies and other things to go to then, so they showed up just to watch the show. Wow, look at that lame man walk. Look at that deaf man here, you know? It was pretty impressive. Others were the lame and the deaf, or they had relatives and friends who were, and so... They needed healing, but um, John is making the point they were seeking Jesus at best for superficial and misguided reasons. 
Then he adds in verses 3 and 4, Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. I am not exactly sure why John puts all that in there, but I'm going to take a stab at it, especially the part about going up on the mountain. I think John is trying to draw a parallel here between Moses and Jesus. Moses, as you know, was revered as the great leader of Israel. He led them out of captivity in in uh, Egypt after the Passover. They got into the wilderness. God called Moses up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And then it was Moses who, through his prayer, was able to call down the manna to feed that large multitude out in the wilderness. Um, Jesus here... I think John wants us to see, is the new and better Moses. He is the Passover lamb that was slain, the the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And so uh, there is that connection. Uh, He went up on the mountain, similar to Moses. He uh, is the prophet, as it says down in verse 14, uh, that Moses spoke of when they say, truly this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They were citing Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses said, God's going to give you a prophet greater than I am. And so Jesus is that prophet. And as we see, Jesus is the bread of life who not only feeds the hungry with literal bread, but he said, uh, my, my body is true bread, my blood is true drink, and uh, his, he will give his life for the world. And so... Um, <clears throat> That's the setting of this miracle. Now, as you think about how Jesus did the miracle, he could have, like Moses, prayed and coming floating down like big snowflakes is manna, and everybody picks up enough sitting by them for to feed themselves, and the miracle would have been done, and it would have been done a lot easier than the way he did it. But how did he do it? Well, I think he did it the way he did it, to train the twelve. And so he asks Philip a question in verse 5. Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, the other Gospels report that the disciples had asked Jesus, send the multitude away so that they can go buy their own food. That's the simple solution to this problem, Lord. But Jesus, in Mark 6.37, says, you give them something to eat. And here, John adds in verse 6, this he was saying to test Philip, for he himself, Jesus, knew what he was intending to do. And so this miracle and the miracles that will follow were given not just to meet the needs of the people, certainly for that reason, but specifically to engage and train the twelve to whom Jesus is going to hand off everything in a short time. And so Jesus is showing Philip and the other disciples, you guys can't meet this need in yourself. You are totally inadequate, but I can meet it if you'll look to me. And so the miracle teaches us that Christ uses inadequate people who surrender what they have to him to meet the overwhelming needs of others. 
And there are four things I'd like to bring out here from this story. The first one is very obvious. People are needy. People are needy. You got 20,000 people, you know, figure the sky dome packed to the built and then a few down on the floor. And they're out in a remote place, according to Luke's gospel. Many of them needed healing, so they weren't able to get up and walk to the nearest store. And in fact, there were no near stores. And so they're out there and it's getting late and they're hungry. So you got this huge need of these people. Now, that physical hunger that these people would have experienced is a picture in this miracle of a deeper hunger. And that is a spiritual need. And I can say that because just down in verses 26 and 27, Jesus is going to point out to them, you were following me so that you could get your bellies filled with the food, but you got a deeper need. You have a spiritual hunger, a spiritual need that only I can satisfy. And he tells them they needed to be focused on the food that endured to eternal life. But you know, this multitude is so typical of many in our day who are living for material things that they think are going to satisfy them, and all that stuff is going to perish in a short time, and they're going to face eternity. And so, while it is right for us to engage in ministries of mercy to help the poor and that kind of thing, we have to keep in mind that is not their main need. The main need of every soul is to be reconciled to a holy God, and for that purpose, Jesus gave his life on the cross so everyone will uh, who believes in him will have eternal life. And so we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of people, uh, convict them of their sins so that they realize my need isn't necessarily for a new job and a little better income and a little nicer house and a better car and, and better health insurance and better this and better that. No, my main need is to know the living and true God, to be reconciled to him. But how do, you, how do you get through to people so that they see that need? I think one of the most effective uh, ways to do it is the way that Ray Comfort, who is the uh, man that did the DVD that's out there on evolution versus God, the way he does it. Some of you are familiar with his technique or his method. What he does is he, he'll work through some of the commandments of God with people to show people who think they're pretty good people they're not very good in God's sight. Because, you know, if you go out on the street and you ask the average person, uh, how does a person get into heaven? They'll say, well, by being a good person. And are you a good person? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. You know, I I, uh, I don't cheat too much. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't do a lot of things like these terrible people, blown up people over in the Middle East and... I'm a good person. And so what Ray does is he'll say to people, um, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. I mean, everybody's told a lie. And uh, what does God call people who tell lies? Well, they're liars. Okay, so you're a liar. Uh, ha have you ever stolen anything? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've taken some things that weren't mine. And what do we call a person who steals things? Well, they're a thief, so you're a liar and a thief. And have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Yeah, yeah, last week I hit my thumb with a hammer. Man, 
I said some things I shouldn't have said. So, okay, the Bible calls that a blasphemer. So you're a, you're a liar, you're a thief, and you're a blasphemer. Have you ever been angry with anyone? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, Jesus said to be angry with someone is to commit murder in God's sight. And have you ever lusted? Yeah, all the time. Well, you know, God says that's to commit adultery. So what you're saying is that you're, you're a lying thief and a blasphemer and, and a murderer and an adulterer. How do you think it's going to go when you stand before the holy God someday? You see, and he's, what he's doing is he's using the law of God to show a person you can't cut it. You cannot begin to hope by your good deeds to stand before a holy God someday. You're needy. And that's one thing this miracle is here to show us is people are spiritually needy. We all are. Uh, the second lesson that this uh, story shows us very obviously is the Lord's people are totally inadequate in themselves to meet people's needs. Um, the other Gospels, as I said, uh, give the disciples easy solution to the multitude's need for food. Send them away. <laughs> Just get rid of them. Let them go take care of their own needs and everything will be fine. But Jesus pointedly says to them, again, Mark 6, 37, you give them something to eat. And specifically, he asked Philip here in our text, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, it would have been great if Philip had said something like this. You know, Lord, I was there when you turned that water into wine. And uh, I, I, I was there when you spoke the word and that nobleman's son was healed at a distance instantly. And I was there by the pool of Bethesda when you raised that man who had been crippled for 38 years and you healed him and gave him strength on those atrophied legs just like that. And I've seen you being right here as you've fed them, or I mean, as you've taught the multitude that you've healed all of these people. So Lord, bread's no problem, right? You can solve this problem. How are you going to do it, Lord? And I would have liked to have thought that that's how I would have answered. Ha ha. Yeah, right. I think I would have answered just like Philip did. How did Philip answer? Well, he started calculating. Let's see, what do we got? Um, you know, I, 200 denarii, Lord. I mean, that's eight months wages for a working man. Wouldn't even begin to give each person a little. Okay. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, they didn't have 200 denarii. He's just kind of speculating. You know, he's doing the math. Well, 200 denarii, 20,000 people, let's see. You know, he's doing the math, but he doesn't have 200 denarii. And <clears throat> second problem, even if they had had more than 200 denarii, because 200, he says, is only going to give everybody a little, say they had had 500 denarii, where are you going to buy bread out in the wilderness? They didn't have, you know, Safeway on every corner. And uh, even if they'd gone into the village, the local bread makers wouldn't have had enough to supply 20,000 people. And so that was a dead-end street. But so often, we're just like Philip. We think, well, there's no way I can meet these needs. I don't have the resources. I don't have the time. I don't have the ability and, you know, we're, even if I did, I'd only barely scratch the surface. We're like Philip. 
And then along comes Andrew. And uh, Andrew, verse 9, says, well, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Okay, so far so good. But then he adds, what are these for so many people? Now, I don't know for sure why Andrew even bothered to bring this boy to the Lord since Andrew says, you know, this is ridiculous. Five loaves, two fish, 20,000 people. Uh, except the Lord had told them, according to the other Gospels, go see what you have. And maybe Andrew stumbled on this boy who said, well, here's my lunch. And Andrew, to humor the boy, you know, said, all right, let's go. But I think his his answer, what are these among so many, is an answer of embarrassment. Frankly, he's embarrassed to even bring this to the Lord. But, you know, let's humor the lad. Here's what we've got, Lord. Five loaves, two fish. Now, these weren't wonder bread, you know, a big loaf of bread. Uh, you're talking about little barley cakes, about yay big around, and so thick. Uh, last a year ago when we were in China, they everywhere they sell this bread called naan. It's about this big around and about that thick. But these were small, little cakes. And barley was the food for poor people, and you fed it to your stock, to your animals. So this is a poor boy, and um, he's got this little lunch. The two fish were probably sardine-type small fish, pickled or dried. It's not going to go very far. What are these for so many people? And I think that underlines in the story, the Lord's people are inadequate. What am I? What are you to meet the needs of this world spiritually? How can you do it? It's beyond us. And that brings us to the third lesson, and this is my favorite one in the whole story. And that is that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient to meet people's overwhelming needs. There's a prayer that Jeremiah prayed that I memorized a number of years ago. The setting of this prayer in Jeremiah 32, 17 is this. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. It's a war zone. Sennacherib, or or I mean um, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to level the city. And the Lord gives the word to Jeremiah, go buy a piece of land. That would be like the Lord commanding you, Go over to Damascus, Syria right now and buy some property. You know, it's a good deal right now. You can get it cheap, okay? And you're going, yeah, right. That's throwing money down the rat hole. I mean, there's no hope. And the Lord tells him to buy land. And in that context, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great hand and your outstretched arm. And then he adds this wonderful statement, nothing is too difficult for you. What a promise. What a great statement. Nothing is too difficult for you. And and John wants us to know that if Jesus is the almighty creator, he's already shared that in chapter 1, who who spoke and the heavens and earth came into existence, then what's feeding 20,000 people? No big deal to Jesus. And he brings out the all-sufficiency of Christ here in at least five ways. First of all, he shows us that Christ is all-sufficient because he's in control of every situation. Verse 6, this he was saying to test him. And then John adds, for he himself knew what he was going to do, intending to do. 
Now, when it says he tested him, the Lord never tests people in the sense of tempting them to do evil. But he does test us to test our faith, to try it, to prove it, to see if it passes the test. Um, and uh, that helps us, of course, to learn to trust him more. Somebody has written, I couldn't track down this quote, but it was not bread that he was seeking from Philip, but faith. He wanted Philip to trust him. And uh, so when Jesus, uh, when, when he's asking him, well, what should we do here? Where are we going to buy bread? He's not stumped. He's not thinking, let's have a brainstorming session, disciples. What do you guys think? How can we get enough money here to, or bread to, to feed this multitude? Uh, rather, the thing that's meant to be conveyed is Jesus is in complete control of this situation. He knows the need. He knows how to meet the need. And he's testing his disciples to say, do you guys trust me? And that's very applicable to us. Because any need you or I ever face, the Lord isn't stumped. He isn't in heaven saying, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now with that problem Steve got himself into? I just can't imagine how to get him out of there. You know, let's get the angels together and have a brainstorming session. That's not what's going on. He is in charge of every problem we ever have, and he is sufficient to meet the need. The second thing we learn here about his all-sufficiency is that Christ is more concerned about needy people than we are. Uh, the disciples want to solve this problem by sending the multitude away. Problem solved. And we don't have to get involved. We don't have to deal with the, the situation. They were more focused on their own need for rest than they were on the multitude's need for food. But the other Gospels report to us that Jesus felt compassion for these people. And uh, he was concerned for them. And he wants us to see needy people through his eyes so that we have compassion on them and see that he delights to meet needs. A third way we see his all-sufficiency is that Christ is not limited by our inadequate resources. Philip comes up with his 200 denarii estimate, 200 denarii that he doesn't have, that will barely meet the need. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's run with that idea. How about going out there and taking an offering and we'll see how much we can get. That wasn't his solution. And then when Andrew offers his apology, but what are these little loaves and fish for so many people? Jesus doesn't say, I know. Let's get everyone to share. I bet there's enough in this crowd to go around. And by the way, that's how some liberal commentators explain away this miracle. It's incredible. They don't want to say Jesus could have done a miracle. So they say, I know it was a miracle of sharing. Oh, isn't that sweet? Everybody shared their lunch. Now, that's not what happened, folks. It's a miracle of creation. Jesus created the bread that fed the multitude. Um, but the point is, we often do like Philip did here, and we try to calculate, and we realize, I don't have enough money, or I don't have enough time, or I don't have enough spiritual gifts to meet the need that's in front of me. And uh, in that regard, I like the words of Watchman Nee. He put it this way. The meeting of the need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. 
That's worth chewing on. The meeting of the need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. The fourth way we see Christ's all-sufficiency here is that he doesn't just barely meet the needs. He abundantly supplies all that we want. And John draws a contrast here when you read this story. You have Philip for everyone to receive just a little. Okay, that's Philip's solution uh, with what he doesn't have. And you have Andrews, but what are these among so many? And then you get to verse 11 and you have Jesus distributing to the people as much as they wanted. Everyone ate until they were full. They were satisfied. And it reminds us of when God sent the manna to Israel. It says in Exodus 16, 18, every man gathered as much as he should eat. And in case we missed it, it repeats it in verse 21. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. And so when Jesus fed the the 20,000 people, everyone says, I'm stuffed, I can't eat anymore. And then Jesus gives the command, pick up the leftovers, and there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. It reminds me of, Paul's words in Philippians 4.19 when he says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. All your needs. And then the last way we see here, Christ's sufficiency, is that he is sufficient not just for physical needs, but for spiritual needs especially. And this isn't just a story about feeding hungry stomachs. It's, it goes deeper than that. It's about the spiritual satisfaction that Jesus brings to all who come to him and who believe in him. Because in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's talking about eternal life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.3, he says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every blessing. But the disciples here are focused on the physical. Remember in the last chapter when Jesus is at the well with the woman from Samaria and uh, the disciples come back with lunch and they keep going, Rabbi, eat. You know, we brought you lunch. Here's the food. And and Jesus says to him, I, I've got food, guys, that you guys don't even know anything about. They're going, somebody bring him lunch? You know? What, what, what happened? And Jesus explains, no, no, no. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to fulfill or accomplish his will. And, and you got the same thing going on here where the disciples, I think, are focused on, let's see, How much money is it going to take to feed 20,000 people? Uh, 200 denarii? That's not quite enough. They're they're there. Or, well, here's some lunch, but it's not much. They're, They're focused on the physical. And the people, the multitude was focused on the physical. We learned that down in verse 15. After Jesus does this, 
They want to come and make him king by force. See, they're saying, wow, this guy can solve our economy. You know, this man, he's got what it takes to get us out of debt and get us on the road to prosperity. Let's make him our king. And later, Jesus rebukes him in verses 26 and 27. He says, you guys are just interested in what feeds your belly. And what you need to be focused on is what feeds your soul. And, of course, Jesus is that. Now, it's the same thing today. You get a lot of people, and the reason they come to Jesus is, oh, I need a job, and and my neighbor told me he prayed, and, and God gave him a job, so here I am. Give me a job. Oh, I'm lonely, and I need a mate, and uh, I know a guy that prayed, and God gave him this gorgeous wife, so, Lord, here I am. Give me a wife. Oh, I need healing, and I know somebody else that prayed, and God healed him, and here I am, Lord, heal me. Okay, God graciously sometimes meets us in that kind of self-centered, physical way. But that isn't our greatest need. Because we're all going to die shortly and stand before a holy God. And our need is to be reconciled to Him. And this miracle... And the discourse that Jesus is going to give us in the rest of the chapter is all about how Jesus is the one who through his death on the cross reconciles us to a holy God as we come to him and believe in him. Then he meets the spiritual needs through us. And so this miracle is all about how people are needy, but they don't see their real need. It's spiritual, not just for bread. And as the Lord's disciples, we're inadequate to meet that need. How can we possibly get the gospel to 7 billion people? It's impossible. And yet Christ is sufficient to meet the need. And he uses his inadequate people who come to him. And that's how he does it. And that's the last point we have here. How Christ meets needs is through his inadequate people who simply yield their inadequate resources to him. And this shows us four ways that Christ meets needs. First of all, it's very obvious that Christ meets the needs of people through people. As I said, he could have done this miracle without any people involved, just prayed, manna floats down, everybody picks up their own, and they're good to go. He didn't do that. Now, John doesn't tell us directly that the disciples were the means of distributing it. The other Gospels do. But John tells us how Jesus involved Philip, and he involved Andrew. And it's only in John's Gospel that we learn where the lunch came from. The other Gospels just say, we have five loaves and two fish. It doesn't say where it came from. John says, there's a little lad here who's got the lunch. So the Lord used this boy and his lunch. And he used the disciples. And you know what? If you know Jesus, you're on. He wants to use you to meet the needs of others. And you go, huh, I can't. I'm inadequate. That's the point of the story. That's the second thing we learn here. God uses inadequate people to meet the needs of people. You know, Jesus could have looked around the crowd and seen a guy in the latest uh, designer clothing and said, that guy's rich. John, 
Go over there and hit him up. See how much money he might be able to contribute. You know? Yep. Or he could have said, you know, that guy's got a big picnic basket back there. Go back and hit them up. And I'll bet if we ask everyone, we can get enough to share with this multitude. He didn't use adequate people to meet the needs of the crowd. He used people that had nothing. They had no food. They had no money. That's who he used. And what I'm making, the point I'm making is this. If you're thinking, well, someday I might be adequate to serve the Lord, uh, you don't get it. When you think you're adequate, you're not. If anybody here and you think you're adequate to serve the Lord, please stop. You're not adequate. It's only when you're going, help, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. Here I am. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me grace. Give me the strength I need here. Give me the funds I need. Give me this. Give me that. There was a man, a wonderful man of faith, Robert Morrison. He went to China in the early 1800s. I, I had the privilege of standing by his grave in Macau once a number of years ago. He was the first Protestant missionary in China. So you got this huge country. And somebody said to him, do you really expect to make an impact on that great land? No, sir, Morrison replied, but I expect God to. I expect God to. And then after him was Hudson Taylor, first man to really take the gospel inland in China. And uh, he made this statement, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. So God only uses one kind of person, inadequate people who trust in him. And then the third thing to learn here is that Christ uses inadequate people who then yield their inadequate resources to him. This boy has to give up his lunch. I don't know if he knew that he was going to eat that day or not when he gave up his lunch. He might have been going, ah, that's all I got to eat. But he's part of the multitude, and we read that everybody ate until they were full. So he probably ate more bread and fish than he brought. But we have to give to others what we first have received from God ourselves, don't we? God gives us gifts spiritually. They're inadequate, but we yield them back to him, and he uses them to meet the needs of others. Here's the danger. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but I don't have very much. You know, I'm I'm a one-talent guy. Remember the danger with the one-talent guy in the parable in Matthew 25? He was the guy that buried it, and he got chewed out by the master when he came back. The guy with five, he made five more. The guy with two, he made two more. The guy with one, I can't do much with this. That's the danger. And if you think, well, I'm not very gifted, Well, don't bury it. Figure out what God has given you and somehow use it so that when you stand before the Lord, you can say, you gave me one, here's two, Lord. And then the last lesson, and I like this one. When Christ uses you to meet the needs of others, he always gives you a basket of leftovers for yourself. Isn't that a great part of this story? You know, in the manna, when the Lord brought down manna from heaven, it says in Exodus, if they collected too much, more than they could eat, it spoiled by the next morning. It was full of maggots. They couldn't eat it. But here, 
there's, there's too much, and the Lord says, gather it up so that nothing is lost. Certainly a lesson in frugality. We shouldn't waste what the Lord gives us. But more than that, I think it's a lesson that the Lord provides for those who serve him. Do the math. How many disciples? Twelve. How many baskets? Twelve. One for each guy. More than they could eat. They were all full. And it's it's a, a lesson about burnout. You know, we hear a lot about burnout, especially among Christian workers, pastors, missionaries. Oh, I'm burned out. Well, I believe in getting enough rest. I think we need that and refreshment and all of that kind of thing. But I think when we burn out, we're bringing it on ourselves because what we're doing is we're trying to meet the needs of the multitude with five or 200 denarii. And it ain't going to stretch. And pretty soon you just go, I give up. Can't do it. You know, I'm out. Now, when you serve in the strength the Lord gives, you're tired after you serve. I go home and take a nap every Sunday afternoon. You know, I'm exhausted. But it's a good tired. It's a good tired where, you you know, you're refreshed and you're going, isn't God good? Isn't he gracious that he uses uh, somebody as inadequate as I to do this? And And so you go home. And you're satisfied with the Lord. And remember, in this miracle, bread is a picture of Christ. And the point of the 12 baskets left over is, I think the disciples were probably exhausted because you do the math, 12 guys serving 20,000 people, uh, that was a hard job. And they're done, but they got a basket full. And it's a picture that when you've served the Lord and the strength he provides, you're tired, but yet... You've got Christ, and he satisfies your soul. Uh, Two concerns that I have in this message. First of all, there may be somebody here, and you've never trusted Christ for your spiritual needs. You've never come to him as a sinner and said, Lord, I'm going to stand before you guilty someday unless you forgive my sins. You've never tasted Christ as the living bread who came down out of heaven to give his life for the world. And and so your greatest need this morning is not that maybe you get healed physically. I mean, I pray God would do that if you're sick. And it's not that God would give you a mate. I pray he'd do that if you're lonely and need a mate. Or even that he'd give you a job. Pray that he'll do that if you're out of funds. But those aren't your greatest need. Your greatest need is Jesus to heal your soul, to reconcile you to a holy God. And the Bible says that if we believe in Jesus, he gives us eternal life as a free gift. And before you walk out the door this morning, you can leave justified, right with God through faith in Christ who died on the cross to bear the sins of all who will believe in him. That's my first need for John 6.35 again. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then here's his promise. Either this is true or it's a joke. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. That's his promise. Take him at his promise. My second concern is this. I think there are some of you who have trusted Christ 
but you're not serving him. You're not serving him. You're not using the little that he gave you and giving it back to him and saying, here it is, Lord. Please use it. Multiply it. There's far more needs than I can meet here. And, you know, it's kind of a standing thing among pastors that you got the 80-20 rule in the church. 20% of the people do 80% of the jobs. It's true. People that are busy do do it all. Others come, sit, leave, and don't do anything. Look in the bulletin. We've got a lot of ministry needs. Look around you. There are needy people. And if you just yield yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I'm not sure how, but my point is get your focus off of self and unto others. And as you do, the Lord will open your eyes to say, you give them something to eat. Lord, I don't have much. I know. Give it to me. And I'll bless it, and I'll use it beyond what you can imagine, and it'll feed the needs of the hungry. And so don't live for yourself. Live to be used of God, and you'll be satisfied later with a basket full of the living bread for yourself. You'll be able to say with Jesus, you know, I've got food to eat that others don't know anything about. Father, I pray that you would... uh, use your word in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here, that we would recognize you've given us what you've given us, not to squander on self, but to use to feed the hungry the bread of life. And I would ask, Lord, if there are those here who have never tasted of Jesus as the living bread who came down out of heaven, that today you would open their eyes to their great need and to his all-sufficiency to meet that need and that they would trust him as Savior and Lord. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.